On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where today, Amy Wright catches up with Jody Whelan. Jody's the oldest son of the late and legendary singer-songwriter John Prine. Jody also runs the label that Prine co-founded, Oh Boy Records, the ins and outs of which he discusses in detail with Amy this hour. In fact, a lot of today's talk revolves around John, how he grew up, his career, what led him to start Oh Boy, the growth of artist-owned and indie labels, as well as the various artists that have been signed to Oh Boy, including Kelsey Walden, Trey Burt, and Arlo McKinley. It's a fascinating conversation, and we're glad you can be a part of it. So let's turn it over to Amy and Jody and hear what they have to say. From Diddy TV, this is Insights. So Jody, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, where are you right now? Are you in Nashville or? Yeah, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm at home, uh, a little under the weather. Thankfully, not COVID, but just trying to not get everyone else sick, you know, so we can do all the things we've been planning to do for the last two years without another interruption. Yeah, so Oh Boy Records was started by John Prine. And for those who don't know, you're John Prine's son, one of, yeah. one of his children, and uh, you're now running Oh Boy. And um, so I thought, uh, so how, how um, or when did you actually join John Prine at the label? Uh, in 2015. So John started Oh Boy in 1981 with his manager, Al Bonetta and um, Dan Einstein, who was kind of came like a label executive who came on and helped launch the label. Um, and um, Al uh, helped, was helping kind of run the label. And, you know, he um, tragically kind of passed away suddenly in 2015. And that's when... I kind of got roped into slash volunteer to take over because, you know, Al had been there so long that we didn't know what we wanted to do, but John didn't want to go to another record label, you know, um, and he liked having his family around him. So we thought, well, okay, you know, we can, we'll be modest and humble and in our goals. And, you know, you've, you've already done a lot of the hard work. You've built, you've wrote the songs, you've got the fan base. Um, we don't have to like swing for the fences. We can just, you know, try and keep it on the pace. And then that did. And, you know, and he, he is the, he still has the best fans, you know, and they really want to support him, but also they got to, they've known the label and support the other artists. So, it, you know, it's been, it's been great, but um, yeah, so I guess it's been seven years now. Well, I'm a huge fan. I, I love John's music and saw him as many times as I could play live. What was it like growing up with John? I mean, he was, you know, Mr. America, like, um, he, he really was, he loved, you know, he loved Christmas. He loved, he, so I grew up in Ireland. Um, John, John married my mom and John, um, adopted me later on in life. And so, um, I moved to America when I was, uh, 12 and the way as a kid in Europe, 
thinking about America as a place where all the cool things are and the movies and everything, the sports, and the food. He like, that was him. Like he kept that sort of wonder of like someone that doesn't even live in America, you know, like, and so he had that and, you know, but it was, um, I mean, he was obviously like, you know, if you know his music, like it wasn't, um, he wasn't unaware that not, uh, not everyone got to participate in it in the same way he did, right? Like he's still like, you know, he was the voice of like people that were forgotten or left behind. But I think like, that's almost why, you know, sad songs are so sad because it's like, you know, he, he had the idea of the country and what it could be. And, and that's what, you know, when it, if it wasn't living up to them, like that's where a lot of the sort of like hello in there is like, I think one of the saddest songs ever. And it's about, you know, a, a couple that kind of does everything and has the American dream and, 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 but they're forgotten about, you know, and like to him, that was the most heartbreaking thing or, or a veteran that comes back and isn't properly taken care of, you know, that was his, you know, so I think like being around him and, 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 you know, moving to America and then the, he's your dad. It's sort of like, it's, you really get all, of, you know, you get to, got the full like yeah just like Mr. America you know um yeah so he I mean he was a lot of fun there was a lot of great music uh and he was just yeah he was he was a really kind he was a good dad and you know heartbreakingly he was a great great grandpa and uh you know like our Aww. my kids still want to listen to his music in the morning on the way to school and you know thankfully We've got lots of pictures and videos, but it, you know, that part's still sad some days because he was as good as he was kind of as a dad, I think as a, as a grandfather, he really like, you know, he was like born to play that role. <laughs> I bet he was. He's such a storyteller too. And the way yeah. he tells stories, um, it's, it's really beautiful how he rolls a story out. And, and in a very short period of time, you've seen someone's life pass in front of you and you have an essence of what happened to them. Not many people can do that um, yeah. in a song. And of course, he's well known to be one of the best songwriters on the planet. Um, but I thought I would go back and just, just uh, ask you a few questions about how he grew up because Oh Boy, he started Oh Boy and I kind of wanted to get to what led him to, to start the label in the first place. But um, where did he grow up? So he grew up in Chicago um, on, in a western suburb called Maywood, um, which is like was working class, uh, kind of a mixed, desegregated neighborhood. His dad was um, a worked in a canning factory, but was also like really heavily involved in like labor unions. Um, so like John kind of had that, you know, like the importance of work and the dignity of work and sort of like, you know, blue collar ethic really put into him. Um, his mom, uh, Verna Valentine Prine, uh, was ma mainly stay-at-home mom who would, you know, always cook. And uh, John had three other brothers. So, you know, I think just taking care of them and, and the house was a full-time job. <laughs> um, you know, the family was originally from uh, Kentucky, you know, famously uh, Muhlenberg County. And I think growing up, they always felt like they were Kentucky. John said, like, they were Kentuckians that lived in Chicago, you know, I mean, and John loves Chicago and still can, you know, like, but I think like his parents, especially like would always kind of drill that into him. Like, you know, someday we're going to go back, you know, um, and they would, they would visit Kentucky a lot. So I think he, you know, I mean, he loves Chicago and that's where, you know, he started writing and performing. Um, but I think he always kind of had 
part of Kentucky in him too, in his upbringing. Um, and I think, you know, there was music in the house. Um, his dad was a big fan of country music. Um, his older brother, uh, Dave, uh, was a big fan of country music and old timey kind of music. And uh, that's where I think John started to kind of learn how to play guitar and sing, came from there. So, yeah. I was, was wondering, of, how, how young yeah. was he when he started playing? So the way he tells the story is that basically he was like the little brother that got roped into it, you know, by like his brother, uh, Dave, like he, Dave kind of wanted to have a band, you know, and so like <laughs> he would try and get John to learn how to play stuff. So I think I think pretty young. Um, I don't think he likes um, it was probably more like in his teens when he think he probably started kind of getting good at it, being able to write songs. Um, I mean, he wrote some. Some of the songs on his first two album, he, he wrote as a teenager, um, which is, you know, like Far From Me on the first uh, album and Sour Grapes that was on the second album. Um, you know, um, so, yeah, I think it was that, you know, he I think he um, as a songwriter, like it was early. He was interested in it, but I think a lot of it, too, he said it was like to try and impress his dad was really into country music and so like he would memorize like Hank Williams songs and play them back for his dad and then and then when he went to the army he would kind of you know play um some country music and stuff that other guys in the barracks would like and that was his way to connect and and it kind of was after he came back from the army that he started like writing more songs and some of the like the big ones like you know Angel from Montgomery and Sam Stone and Hello in there and that was kind of in his like early 20s. So he served in, in Vietnam, right? Was that so he got, in the so army he got drafted during Vietnam, mm -hmm. and he uh, but he didn't get sent to Vietnam. Um, basically, all of his friends did. I, you know, he's like he had a really kind of modest and self-effacing way. So he said what happened was like, you know, they'd give you a test to like figure out what your aptitude is and where you're going to get sent, and he just kind of like didn't look at it and just marked everything. And they labeled him as like a mechanical genius. And he got sent to Germany to work on like the really big equipment and like construction equipment. Um, so he served in Germany during Vietnam. I mean, I, I, he like he loved a good story. So sometimes I'm always like, is that true? Because like, like he also was really into cars, too. So like I think, you know, but I think he definitely found himself. He thought of himself as, you know, obviously really lucky because a lot of uh, a lot of the boys he went to school with um, didn't come back, you know, or if they did come back, they were um, injured, you know, either physically or had suffered uh, PTSD. Yeah, I was wondering if he ever talked about that as as a as something that kind of influenced him in some way, because um, anyone who's who's served, you know, has has that. Um, and it's really hard to remove oneself completely from the experiences. I mean, it sounds like he didn't yeah. have to actually go to Vietnam, but even just right. having friends, kind of, friends that the, went. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's, it was hard for him to wrestle with. Like, his basic training was in, you know, it was in Louisiana. So, like, everyone was getting trained to go to Vietnam. It was like, you know, jungle training and, like, in the swamp right. and getting ready. And so I think he had kind of prepared himself for it. And, you know, I don't know if he ever, like, had kind of guilt, like, that he got mm -hmm. sent to Germany and, like, a lot of his buddies got sent. Um, you know, I mean, sadly, um, even some of the people he served with in Germany, like, um, you know, from the kind of the boredom and the time downtime, like, addiction was still an issue there. And so some of the, the things he talked about in Sam Stone wasn't just... Um, 
happening to folks that had served in uh, Vietnam. It was also just, you know, people, again, we didn't, I don't think there was the kind of the language to talk about any of this stuff back then, but like, and folks would, you know, whether it was language around addiction or, or trauma, but, you know, he, he saw like some folks went over there and just didn't handle being at home and then got hooked on something. And, you know, so I think, I think part of it in his head was what was going on in Vietnam, but he also, I think, saw that experience and um, while he was in Germany too. So when he came back, was he playing music? What was he doing? Was he, did he get a job or? He did. He got a job as a, uh, he delivered mail in Maywood. He had a postal route um, and that's where um, he wrote his songs in his head. I think he was like an amazing guitar player, especially, you know, later in life as he really developed his style. But I don't think he ever considered himself like, like a musician's musician. So, you know, where some people can kind of write down like chords and stuff he would just kind of hum things in his head and, and say outlines and then maybe write it down on a scratch of paper and then come back to it um and that's and it was just delivering mail is where he kind of started working on those uh songs that we were going to be on his first album i'm sure he was a great mail person but yeah. i'm glad he ended up as he, a, as a he, great he, musician you know, he said he was like terrible he, he was always like <laughs> kind of the slowest way you know, he would like be the last one to finish his drought because he'd be daydreaming or like, you know, there was like no benefit to like completing your route quicker because then they would just give you more work. So <laughs> he would, it's like he would do it all, you know, in um, <laughs> the maximum amount of time possible. So was he playing open mic nights or what was he doing with um, his music? I think a little bit, you know, so um, again, with the, you know, the, from the influence for his brother, like, you know, there was some music going on. He, um, it's still around. It's called the Old Town School of Folk. Um, his brother uh, took classes there and then later taught, I believe. And just as an interest in sort of folk music and playing guitar, he would go there. And then after sessions there, there was like, um, uh, you know, a bar close by where some people will go and there'll be open mics. But he wasn't really doing a lot of... Um, open mic stuff before things like things took off really quickly for him you know the way he tells it is he did open an open mic night and played some of like sam stone i think hello in there and maybe like paradise i think and you know he had those songs and and they're like can you come back and do that again and then and it was you know it, it happened really quickly for him you know it was in like 1970 and then, you know, his, his record deal with Atlantic was in 71. So it, it um, you know, I think he, there was a, scene, a really supportive scene, you know, like Steve Goodman and, and some other folks in there really kind of lifted everyone up. And, um, and pretty quickly he got a regular club uh, job and then quit, um, quit the mail uh, service and, and then got discovered by, you know, uh, Christofferson and, sent to New York and it, it happened, it happened. It was kind of a whirlwind, you know, how was he discovered by Chris Christopherson through his buddy, Steve Goodman. Um, okay. who's, who's a great singer songwriter. He, uh, I think Steve was playing or opening for Chris and it had gone well. And, you know, Steve and, uh, John were best friends. And I think he, as you know, um, John always really credited Steve. It's like, Steve didn't have to do that. Like he could have, he could have used that connection to further his own career, but instead he like reached back and told Chris, like, you've got, if you think I'm good, you've got to go hear John, you know? And the story was that he had 
he brought uh, Paul Anka and Chris Christopherson to this little club uh, that John had done. And he'd already done playing and he was sort of drinking his beer and counting like, you know, the money he made. And they made him get back on stage and he did a few songs and then they asked him to do them again. And he did. And then um, pretty quickly after that, you know, they go up to New York and Chris brings them into uh, John into Atlantic Records. And, you know, he signs a contract like the next day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty unusual for folks from Chicago to get signed. Like everyone, you know, had to go to New York or L.A. Um, You mean there was a scene in Nashville, too, at that time. But, you know, it wasn't like. It, what you know now with the internet you can kind of discover someone anywhere right and go where they are and, and each place has their music scenes but back then especially like you sort of had to to do it in front of the record executives and like on the coast and so I, you know they everyone was really excited uh back in chicago when when john and steve also got a deal um you know without having to kind of leave chicago you know to do it and of course he was compared very quickly to bob dylan who yeah. was another great songwriter that had come just before him. Did yeah. they know each other at all throughout their life? Or Yeah, they got to connect a little bit. I mean, John always thought, like, you know, that he wouldn't have had a job if it wasn't for Bob Dylan. You know, like, he mm-hmm. not only opened the door, like, he, like, created the door that someone like him could walk through that was sort of, it was folk music, but it was also, like, a real, like, country influence, but also brought in, like, a bit of rock and roll, um, so, yeah, I mean, he was definitely one of John's songwriting heroes. And then, you know, um, I guess he, he always sort of resented that, like, people were kind of trying to compare him because, he, you know, mm-hmm. he, he had such high respect for Bob, but he knew that sort of what he did was a little bit different. But I think, like, then he later learned that it was, like, the people at the, his record label, like, doing that to try and, you know, like, oh. <laughs> that's what you're going to do. It's like, oh, if you like Bob Dylan, you know, like, sounds like. And... And that's just, you know, to try and help sell records. But he, um, you know, I guess Bob had gotten an early advanced copy of John's first record and and, and liked it and, and got to like, um, he played, he showed up at one of John's club shows in New York and sang on one of the songs. And, and he said some nice things um, that, you know, our publicists like to quote about John you know, through the years. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know how many people like, Bob invites over for a barbecue. You know, he's not that kind of guy. But I think, like, when when people have asked him about songwriters he admires, like, you know, it meant something to John that, like, his name came up because, like, he holds him in such high regard. You know, it seems like that era of the 60s, late 60s and through the 70s was such a golden era for the songwriter. So much great music with lyrically came out at that time. And um, I don't know whether it's competition or... You know, everyone's elevating everybody else to another level, but it just seems like so much great yeah. music came out. No, you, you're right. I was actually looking at just just that year, 1971, when John's first record came out. Like, it is just they actually just made a documentary, I think, on on Apple about it. Like, just about that year in music because it just seemed it was just like this explosion. You know, um, I think part of it was that the, the major labels used to not want to have their artists write their own songs. You know, like being a performing songwriter wasn't really a thing. It was like, well, let's find, you know, we'll use our best songwriters and get our best voice and get our best producer and and we'll make this product. And I think this sort of identity of like the singer songwriter 
um, I mean, it had been around before, I think like in folk music, you know, like with like uh, Pete Seeger and some other folks and maybe like Hank Williams a little bit, but the idea of like the performing singer songwriter was sort of a new thing. And I really do think like, you know, Dylan and Joni Mitchell and, and some of those other early folks really kind of, kind of created that genre. And yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, the early seventies. I mean, it was, it was an explosion, you know, I don't know if there was like just this pent up all these great songs that needed to get out, you know. It is interesting in history how there are certain eras that you can point to that everything kind of came together yeah. in this beautiful way. I mean, way. also, I think like the popularity of the album format, you know, like, because um, so, for so much like the, it used to be the record business was just about singles. And so like making 45s, getting on the radio, selling the singles. Um, but then you get to the album format and where you can tell kind of like bigger stories, longer stories, and people can really connect to an artist. I think that served, certainly served John really well. And I, I think it probably served a lot of kind of that, that wider constellation. Like, I mean, think about someone like Townsend Zant, right? Like, yeah, he's got like songs that a lot of people know, but really like, it's like, listen to an, like a Guy Clark album or Townsend Zant album, you know, that's where you really like make a connection and like, sort of get into the world and and sort of really get to understand that artist, you know? Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, it is funny, like, how trends, you don't always think about, like, like technology or trends, like, and how that affects art. But, yeah, I mean, if John had, like, started his career when everyone was just doing, like, you know, two songs, like, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if he would have had the same career. Um, or if he'd started, you know, last year when like you know playlists and and social media were kind of how most people are discovering music like yeah i'm not sure so he was on atlantic when he started and then he put out three albums with atlantic right and then uh, went to asylum four, four or? albums and then they put out kind of a greatest hits which was pretty early but i think they didn't really know what to kind of do with them and then um yeah electra kind of asylum he put out another three records that was also owned by I guess at the time Atlantic. So they kind of, I think they didn't really know what to do with him and they thought maybe, well, this will give him another shot if he goes over there. So, you know, he was, he's kind of stayed in the same fan, you know, label family. What did he think of being a part of a label? Was it something he, he thought was helpful or, or not? So I think initially, right, I mean, that's just the only thing you do. I don't think, you know, there was many other options, like in the early 70s, right, if you want to put out music, if you, um, you have to have a record label. Um, and I think he didn't love every part of it, like the promotions and getting sent to radio stations where they were like never going to play his music. Like, you know, and like the DJs would, or program directors would like tell him that to his face, like, oh, yeah, you're great. We'll go to your show. Like, yeah, no, there's nothing on this record we're going to play. And like, this is like before the interview starts. And then like, yeah. Yeah, what, you know, what are we supposed to talk about? <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I think, I think he appreciated it. I think, you know, on, on the first record, you know, they they put him together with the producer who had done like Aretha Franklin and, and all these really big records. But it didn't really, hadn't really done anything sort of in the folk or country vein. And they sent him down to Memphis um and with uh elvis presley's band and you know and i think that part like was like very exciting to john because he loved elvis 
Um, but it, I think he sort of like, yeah, it was kind of a whirlwind, you know, and he was just sort of going along with it. I think by as he sort of gotten more into the, you know, as the professional part of the business and he saw like what was going on, I think he kind of understood it a bit more. And, um, you know, I think probably by the time he was on, um, maybe by his second record on Electra Asylum, I think he was starting to get increasingly frustrated with it. I was wondering if it he felt creatively stifled because you hear these stories about certain situations in which labels say, hey, I want another album like that last album. It has to be the same. Yeah. And uh, The good thing for him is like he didn't have any hits <laughs> on any of them, right? <laughs> like there were songs that other people covered and, you know, um, back then, like all the major labels would also have a, a cut of your publishing, you know? So mm -hmm. I think they were happy enough because, you know, like John Denver and Bette Midler and, and Carol King and a few other like people like pretty quickly covered some of the, the, the songs on the first two records. So I think they knew that, you know, look, this guy's a good songwriter. We don't know how to promote him. We don't know what to do with him. Um, we're not going to spend too much money on him, but like, you know, um, they saw, I think they saw some value on having him around, but yeah, I think eventually it kind of got to be, you know, you sign to a label and the people there are excited, but eventually those people all leave and go to something else and you're still there and no one, you know, and commercially it's not doing great, but it's not bad. You know, it's getting like good press and there's, there is an audience for it, but it's not, maybe not large enough to warrant your whole kind of marketing and promotion machine. So what led him to start Oh Boy then? So in so once his deal was done with Electra Asylum, you know, um, I think he had a few other offers, probably not honestly great offers, um, to put out um, his music from other labels. But, you know, I think he was sort of a little disillusioned with it. He saw like, you know, I can make money if I go out on the road and play shows. And I have fans, you know, I know that will support me. Um, I don't think that he knew had that plan, like as he was making his lap, you know, I don't think he had like the next steps um, uh, lined out, but he was, you know, I think it was really, I want to say that it was like the, the rounder folks and like Sugar Hill and some of seeing what some of those independent labels were doing. And like, you know, I think there was like some interest there. Um, but there, I mean, there wasn't really any artist-owned labels at this point, you know. Um, I think, like, punk music was starting to become a kind of a thing, and there was one label, like, called Discord in D.C. that had started. But this was before, like, you know, in the 80s, it became it definitely became a bigger thing where you have, like, uh, kind of, like, punk artists, hip-hop artists, um, some kind of indie rock artists starting their own labels. And there was, like, kind of a, more of an explosion, especially when CDs came on, too. But this was really kind of like, it, it wasn't a model to follow. So it wasn't like, oh, I'll just, I'll just start my own label and put out music, you know, simple. Like, you know, there wasn't, it was kind of making it up as it went along. Um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of folks thought it was sort of career suicide, you know, just to start, what does that even mean? You're starting a record label, what are you gonna do? How are you gonna make stuff, you know? How are you going to get stuff in stores? Um, and it was, I mean, the label started in 81, but the first album didn't come out till 83. So I think it, you know, it took a minute. The very first thing that came out on the record label, however, there was a seven inch of uh, 
I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus and silver bells. John, John loved Christmas. So the first thing oh boy ever put out was a, um, a Christmas seven inch. And you know, it was mail order. Uh, and I think the first store that we had stuff in was um, Ernest Hub record stores here in Nashville. And, you know, he would bring stuff on the road and he would have fans send in and give him money. Um, and when he announced he was um, working on a new record, it was sort of Kickstarter before the inter internet existed. You know, he told people that he was going to make a new album. Um, and if they sent him, I think it was $10, that they would mail a copy out when it was done. And um, they had the album funded before he went in the studio. Um, you know, and I think we've kept some of those checks and notes just to have, just because, you know, how, how cool is that? That people sort of yeah. would send in, you know, to something that was had no idea that they would get it back or if it would be good or if they would like it, but they just wanted to support John. So, you know, well, so been, when he started, when he started the label, was his intention to sign other artists or just put out his own music? Yeah. Just to put out his own music. Like there wasn't sort of like uh, we're going to take over the music <laughs> industry. It was just sort of like, well, I want to, I think I want to keep making music, but I don't want to be on another label. Um, I just want to do it myself because I know I have fans and I can bring it on the road and we can mail it to them. There wasn't like a a design to like, you know, that, or thought that it was going to be like a runaway success. It was just sort of like, you know, we'll just keep it small and DIY and do it ourselves. Um, and then I think as things started to like, you know, it was ups and downs, but I think through the 80s, they were able to keep it going. And then into the early 90s and with CDs and the, the Missing Years album was really, I think, um, a big turnaround financially for the record because it did it was probably the the first album that did like very commercially well from the beginning and that kind of made it so um the label wasn't quite as touch and go you know every from month to month um and i think that's when the idea of like well we could have other artists on the label you know we could we could support you know and there's more staff to to support john's career so i think you know you're like, well, we could maybe do one or two other things. And um, I want to say that the first um, act that was signed was a band, a rock band called the Biscuits. It's um, Nashville based. And there's a, all the guys have gone on to do like lots of other great things, but the Biscuits never, you know, <laughs> like um, Mike Grimes, who uh, helps start Grimey's records here in Nashville and is like owns the Basement East and like, uh, Tommy Womack, who's a great musician, and people who will go on to do like all lots of other great music. But that was one of the first things. We're actually going to really show that on vinyl just for kicks, um, I think, in the next year or two. Um, and then, yeah, I think there was some kind of feeling out, you know, it was still, even though there was a lot more labels in the 90s, like being kind of on an independent label wasn't kind of as cool as it is now. It was still seen as maybe like a stepping stone to to go on and do something bigger or better, you know, whereas now I think when things, uh, you can, you can have a great career and, and be on an independent label, you know, your whole career, you know, and still, and still uh, I leave a comfortable life. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case back then. So I think there was still kind of some figuring out of, you know, how can we help? What can we do? Who makes sense? But, you know, they, um, there's, there was folks that had a pretty long-term relationship with Todd Snyder. We put, they, uh, I think, signed him in the early 2000s and put out maybe four or five of his records. And Todd's great. We still, you know, he's he kind of puts out his own music now. We still have a good relationship with them. And 
there's um, this guy, Dan Reeder, who John signed, I think in 2004 or five, might have that wrong, but he's still on Oh Boy. And he kind of just does his thing that's different from anybody else in the world. Um, and I think John always kind of got a kick out of being able to just sign great songwriters, but, and that was it. Like he didn't have to, there was no alter. Oh, it's going to be massive. It's like, no, this, this is just good songwriter, good music. It's different from what everyone else is doing. You know, Oh Boy's a home for that. I was wondering what the criteria were, was for selecting the artists that he selected. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it was like a little different, um, you know, and then being able to perform it, you know, so write your own songs and being able to perform it and, and go out on the road and connect with, connect with folks. I mean, I'm, if, we're still trying to figure out what the criteria is. You know, you, it is sort of one of those <laughs> things you, you hear it, you know, or you see, you see it live and hear it and you're like, oh yeah, okay, that, that would make sense. And I think that it's probably good. I think if you ever got to like had rules, like, you know, or it would, it would probably be too limiting. I think we always want to be like, oh, you know, you want to keep your heart open to getting just blown away by something, you know, some new thing you'd never imagined of. How many um, John Prine albums were actually released on the label? Let's see. So, you know, um, it was like, there was also duet records, uh, like In Spite of Ourselves, and For Better or Worse. He did a, a record with um, Mac Wiseman, who's a legend, country music hall of famer um, of duets, and, you know, three live albums and reissues. But uh, like studio albums, there was German Afternoons, Aimless Love, The Missing Years, Lost Dogs, and sorry, I'm counting as I go, Lost Dogs and <laughs> Blessings. Uh, fair and square and then so like six or seven studio albums but probably six or seven more kind of duet records or and you know live records and, and other ones do you have a favorite i mean you know just because i was there for the making of tree of forgiveness it's like it's definitely really like kind of personal and mm -hmm. but you know that the first live record i think oh boy put out in uh, 1988 is really great because, it, you know, he's telling stories and it is sort of like the experience of going to a John Prine show, which is really hard to capture on like a, a studio album, you know, but um, that's great because that's mainly him and his guitar. And um, it's, it was originally just going to be for like um, a German only release, but he, he did in 2000, a record called Souvenirs which was like a, a kind of an acoustic re-recording of his earlier stuff. You know, it was cool to hear him revisiting those songs as, gosh, he would have been, I guess, in his mid to late 50s when he did that. Songs that he wrote as like, um, you know, in a teenager, early 20s, you know, so like obviously like Hello in there, Angel from Montgomery sounds different sung that way. And it was like, you know, it was more in the style, if you had seen him play, say, from like the 90s on, that's what that record sounded like. So, you know, I think for like new material, I would say Tree of Forgiveness, but the Souvenirs record is great because it is, you know, it's an artist who has lived with these songs for decades now and like gotten to think about how he'd want to do the arrangements. And they're pretty, they're pretty um, stripped back, but he did always say on that first record, he was just so nervous. And I don't think anyone else can hear it because that record is like, you know, uh, critically adored. But I think sometimes when he listened to it, he sort of winced a little bit because he knew he was, you know, how nervous he was and how he's like, oh, mm -hmm. I don't deserve to be here and like in the studio with these players. Um, so I, I think 
I always liked that record because it was someone that can almost like reckon with, you know, his achievement. You know, it's weird mm-hmm. to think, I'm sure, writing songs that like people want to cover and perform and you didn't have any hits, but people still regard them like decades later. So, you know, like that that's a real thing. And I think like John was, you know, really humble, but I think like he was also not, um, you know, he wasn't blind to the fact that, yeah, these these were good songs, you know, and and these meant something. So, I, you know, I, I don't I do have a special place in my heart for that one, too. It was nice that he was able to see that he was a national treasure in his lifetime. Yeah. Rather than having it be after, you know, one passed away, um, because I think he had risen to that level long before he died. And that had to have been really nice for him to see that he was that beloved by everybody. You know, it was. And honestly, in the last, you know, couple of years, you know, that's something that gives, I think, us a little bit of solace, too. Just that, like, he knew, like, after he passed, it was an you know, incredible outpouring of love and support and, and admiration and appreciation. But he he did get to know how loved he was when he was alive. And, you know, that... I mean, it's still sad, but it's also like, you know, it's I can I can smile about that, too, because like he he was got to have some like really special times and know and other artists that he admired and and you got to play in places that he really liked. And, you know, it had meaning to him. Um, Yeah, and I I agree. Like, it's great. And certainly got me thinking more about like our community, too. Like, you know, are we celebrating all the artists in our community that, you know, have helped build it, you know. Who are some of the artists that you signed more recently? So, um, so start, so as the kind of the, you know, if the Prime family kind of took over the label in 2015, mm-hmm. we were pretty heavily just focused on John those first few years, but John definitely had a, a hand in as we brought on new talent. So Kelsey Walden was the first um, artist we signed and he'd always, he'd loved her voice for a long time and she had gone and played with him before and, um, open a bunch of shows. And um, so we signed her and put her record out in, I guess, 2019, uh, White Noise, White Lines. And um, and that, you know, that was great. And uh, we're actually gearing up for another Kelsey record this summer. We're very excited about. Then after um, Kelsey, there was a, a folk singer from uh, Sacramento, Trey Burt, who signed. You know, it was great. John did get to see Trey. Um, it was actually one of the last shows that... Um, we, we all went to was one of Trey's performance in Nashville. Um, and, and he was really excited about Trey's record and the one that, um, that we put out and the new stuff he had been working on. And Arlo McKinley, who is Cincinnati based singer songwriter, again, someone we'd known about and kind of liked and uh, respected for a while. And um, he sort of had, you know, mutual friends of ours from his managers uh, work with Tyler Childers, who we also love and, and so when we were able to kind of work that out and um, we set uh, set him up with uh, Matt Rossbang, who's a producer based in Nash- uh, Memphis, who we love and who's worked with John on a few things. So that was that was great. And uh, John did get to hear the record, some of the record and the songs that were going on there, um, too. So that was great. And then the last artist we just signed was um, Emily Scott Robinson, who is um, more of kind of a, I think, more traditional, probably folk singer songwriter, like in the vein of maybe Nancy Griffith or Patty Griffin, which put out her record American Siren last year. But I, I think they're all different, but I do think in some ways they've all kind of 
John has been there as an influence on their on their craft. You know, I, that's not a pre prerequisite, you know, for being on Oh Boy, but I think it's it's great that everyone sort of has their own story of how they came to John's music, you know, prior to being on Oh Boy. Okay, well, what's next for Oh Boy? You're you're in charge now, so what what is next yeah, for Oh Boy? Um, we've got well, so you know, we've got great records from Kelsey and Arlo coming out mm -hmm. this year. That we're really excited about. Um, in the fall, we are finally going to be able to do um, a tribute show. Well, it's going to be really more like a week of shows for John. We had originally scheduled it for last year and had to reschedule because um, of Omicron and, and everything. And, and I think we finally feel good that we can have these shows now. So we're kind of calling the week You Got Gold. We have two nights at the Ryman, we have uh, Country Music Hall of Fame, we have show at the Basement East. There's a couple of venues we haven't announced yet, but it's all kind of going to fall in the week around his birthday in October. So we've been putting a lot of, um, you know, planning and thought into that. There's going to be lots of great artists and um, we're looking forward to that. Um, it's all, it's, you know, it's, it's crazy that it's taken so long to do, but, you know, we thought, you know, well, October, 2021 is so far away. Like there's no way that the pandemic will still be around. And then, you know, um, so, you know, it's, it's been, it's crazy that it's going to have been over two years. I mean, it's wild. Um, I'm sure like everyone else, like my sense of time with the pandemic is just completely out the window, but you know, uh, we're really looking forward to that. There's some other kind of cool projects we're working on that, you know, will probably will come out next year um, around with John and sort of his legacy and um, uh, some, you know, reissues of music, but then also some kind of, you know, movie and documentary projects. Um, and then, you know, hopefully new music from artists on our label and maybe a, a few other things. Um, well, definitely keep in touch with us. We're yeah. big fans of Oh Boy. We're big fans of John Prine and the other artists that you have on your label. Yeah, we appreciate uh, your support. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we, you know, one of the things we are focused on too, just because of the pandemic is like doing more things out in the world. You know, like mm -hmm. before it seems like every, everything kind of happens online or it shows, but we have trying to got into trying to do more community events too. We, um, with a, a good friend of mine who owns um, some record stores, we've been doing this thing called the... Um, the Oh Boy Final uh, Brew Tour, where we go to like breweries and coffee shops, like just around the country and, and set up kind of places where people can come and get music from Oh Boy artists, but also other artists. And just kind of as a, a, a communal kind of space for, you know, music lovers to hang out. That's been great. And we are looking at that too, just more ways to to interact in our, with our community. You know, I think um, because so much of what we do is like dependent on, you know, our community being strong. Like, so, you know, we don't think we're sort of in competition with other folks. Like we want, you know, we want like other labels like that and other musicians that are on our label to do well too, because it's, we're all sort of trying to do the same thing. You know, it's not like we're trying to all be pop stars or get as, as famous. It's more like, no, we want, you know, we want our community to be really healthy and, and, to, and to be vibrant and strong. And then we'll all, I think, benefit. So, that's that's one of the things that we've been really trying to hammer on this this year and hopefully take into next year. Well, everything you say sounds like the spirit of John Prine is still there. So, um, Jody, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking with you about Oh Boy. Um, and, um, you know, we look forward to hearing more from your artists and and we wish you the best this year. Maybe we'll see you in October. 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Amy. Um, well, you guys should come down for Americana Fest too. In yes, oh. of course. Yeah, in oh. Nashville. Yeah, yeah. We're we're a big part of that too. And, th- and come see us in Memphis. Support. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll be. I would love Memphis. Yeah, we'll be. We'll be down. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Jody. Take care. Have a great week. Okay. You too. Thanks so much to Oh Boy Records' own Jody Whelan for stopping by today to chat. Be sure to visit oboy.com to check out all the incredible music and merch they offer, as well as their social media pages, where you can give them a follow or a like and get plugged into the incredible musical community that they've created, and which we're so glad to support here at Diddy TV. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.